Welcome to the She Yearns Podcast. I am Terry Strange, and I am so thankful you have joined us today. Thank you for being a part of this community. The She Yearns community exists to lead women to desire more of God in everyday life, making Him evident and desirable to others. Welcome to the podcast. If you have been a listener to the podcast for any length of time, you have discovered that we have a large family. With small or large family always lives ugliness. (laughs) We just have more of it than you do. (laughs) Anytime you put two imperfect, selfish people together and ask them to raise a bunch of selfish, self-righteous, ornery kids, it will always be an imperfect task. I don't care how pretty your Instagram wall is. We've got issues, inconsistencies, and yes, outright ugliness that is always showing up at inconvenient and destructive times. But not everyone would agree. There are those who reside in my house who feel at times they are the victim in a cruel environment. Nothing is fair. It, whatever it is at the time, wasn't their fault, but it was so-and-so's fault. In fact, If something goes wrong, they don't seem to take any responsibility. The problem is you, or me, or school, or the girl down the street, or the car, or the lady at Walmart, or the lawnmower. You name it. It's not their fault. What my loved ones, including myself, can display is a victim mentality that is not legitimate. There are situations and traumas people experience leaving marks of victimization that are serious mental, emotional, possibly physical, and most certainly spiritual facets that need to be addressed. Sometimes you need assistance from godly counsel to come to a place of freedom and wholeness. This is not what I'm talking about. This is a very real phenomenon. Seek the Lord if this is you. Get the help you need. I'm not qualified to advise you. I'm talking about a phenomenon that is taking our culture by storm called playing the victim. The most current research should alarm us. It's not just my family dealing with these issues, it's yours. It's theirs, the house across the street. It's around the country and even across the globe. In the last 30 to 40 years, as a culture, we have changed the way we view the world, how we raise our families, how we move into adulthood, and it's literally destroying us. Let me give you an ugly example from my house. Then I want to help you take in what we might see around us and how this is ultimately impacting our society and spheres of influence. But that information alone doesn't help us address the problem or identify any solutions. We need to go to the Bible because it addresses our today problem specifically and provides a framework for a solution. And with that framework in hand, we will finish with three solutions for how you and I can stop playing the victim and how we can help those in our life choose another path as well. In our house, it's more difficult than many houses in America to be selfish. You can try, but it's most likely going to leave you unsuccessful and ultimately unsatisfied. That has been a beautiful byproduct of a big family, but it can be a slow death to self. And with that slow death comes a necessary rise in responsibility. But this too is an uphill battle that not everyone rallies to. It's a painful but essential process. Most don't choose to embark 
embark upon willingly. We have one kid currently, in particular, who is dragging this process out into all of their environments and relationships and every imperfection they experience. They have claimed their victim status card and now demand that it be stamped over and over again. Nothing is ever their fault, and I mean nothing. The kid has a reason and justification for how it wasn't them, why it had to be somebody else, and all the buts and it wasn't me's they can muster. And we are nailing them on this garbage, refusing to stamp their imaginary victim status card, but it's not really having much of an impact yet. This is a serious situation at our house that's really driving us to our knees. If we let this kid go through their childhood accepting defeat and lower standards because of what they perceive to be someone else's problem and responsibility and what has been done to them as if they have no control or hand in it, they're going to be tossed into the devastating winds of high school, struggle with relationships, maybe or maybe not enter college, likely lose jobs, ruin their marriages, and the next generation will have no idea how to find true north in their life because they didn't have it set up for themselves. Not on my watch. Not without some struggle, at least, on my part. I'm talking about a kid who doesn't get by with this type of thing. He or she did the deed, and they are displaying the selfish attitude, and they get in trouble for it. That's what happens at our house. So, let's say it's been addressed for, like, the 438 time. And now they are to, to sit alone in their room and get their emotions in check and think over the situation before we can continue. We're going to have discussion, but we cannot continue until we're on the same page here. So dad notices they seem ready to talk and is hopeful that they have had time to recognize their fault and move on in a productive discussion. Instead, when they get together, the first words out of their mouth challenged my poor spouse as to why he was not doing such and such as a parent and how it was clearly someone else's fault and on and on. This is a child. Obviously, nothing was getting through, so they went around the barn a second time to see if there was another way they could look at the ponies, if that would help, per se. It did not. All this child could see was their victim status and how we were making it worse by refusing to acknowledge it and sign the stinking imaginary card. Not too many moons later, I had noticed same kid not doing things I had told them to do. It was a daily responsibility. I was having to sign that they actually did and then they were going to have to turn that into the school. I addressed the issue with the child. The response I got was an emotional volcanic eruption and a discourse on how it was impossible for them to actually do what they were supposed to do or they were literally going to have to go without food. It was now all my fault and now they were going to fail because I wouldn't sign the paper. I know, this is ugly, strange drama. You weren't expecting that, I'm sure, because you thought we had it all together. <laughs> but yes, we do have some drama sometimes at the strange house. But we're not alone. The research is showing that this is all too familiar and normal in today's families. But our responses to what is normal do not have to be normal. Our responses, the normal response would be to validate all of this madness. Coddle cuddle and make sure the kid left with a super confident self-image for asking their mom to lie, neglecting their assignments, and manipulating everyone involved with poor emotional control. Plus, help them make the good grade. I mean, we can't have them not making perfect scores for something as ugly as this. How embarrassing would that be for us as a parent? And heaven forbid they suffer any negative impact in life for their own actions and attitudes. And then, and then we would post a selfie about it, hiding all of the ugliness, of course. Our responses 
must go against the grain of normal in a case like this or anything else like it. And it's going to sound harsh because we have become so soft and responsive to cultural norms dealing with situations like this. My kid hit me with a sob story. They were going to starve if they did what I asked. It was a 15-minute task. I first double-checked with them that they indeed had 15 minutes more available in the 24-hour day in which to complete the requirement and reminded them I never asked that the task take place in the 15 minutes that overlapped a mealtime, that was their idea. And then I reminded them if they are going to starve, it's going to be their fault because they set their own schedule. But before they blamed me for keeling over, they might think about changing their schedule. That has nothing to do with me. That's their own deal. And I assured them that I would not be lying for them regardless of the grade they received. This is not my fault. But I would be contacting the teacher. (laughs) That's for sure. And I explained nicely. My concern was their care over the GPA. I suggested that they do what they're supposed to do, find the extra 15 minutes that's threatening starvation, take some responsibility, and get their emotions under control, or it's going to be super embarrassing for them to show up to school looking like that over something as little as this. That's how it might play out in our family, fighting against this game of playing the victim. Now, today, this mindset is rampant. It's especially prominent, but it's not limited to, obviously, millennialists. Now, there's a woman named Jean Twinge who is at San Diego State University, and she took the results of a psychological assessment that was been offered to college students since the 1930s called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventories, and she took the longitudinal results of that study and compared them. And what she found is that even though we have experienced such great advances in all kinds of areas of health, the rights for women and minority groups, all kinds of things, increased wealth, there has also been an increase in anxiety and depression. And over the last decades, the belief that a person is in control over their own destiny has declined dramatically. And this is what got me. The other belief that they found is that we are less capable of owning our own problems. A lady named Gina Loudon wrote an article and she offered some insight into how we have shifted in this direction. It basically boils down to lotus of control. Instead of leading individuals toward resilience and controlling things on the inside, becoming a better person, self-improvement, things like that, who you are, we have gone full speed ahead in the other direction. Today, external sources are controlling us. Things like appearance, status, anything that is visible defines the person. Shaming is actually destroying people. We are seeing a greater number of young people committing suicide because of this shaming than ever before. And we don't seem to possess the necessary ability as a people to move beyond the external heckling like we once did. And Loudon points out that what we might have once called a personal challenge is now a tragedy. It's not just children in the middle of the mess. Today's parents are just as tangled up in it. This plays out in how wrapped up they become in the lives of their children. We see this on and on. It was just in a scandal that was made evident involving superstar parents who were bribing institutions, Ivy League schools, coaches, and representatives to get their kids into those elite schools. And now these guilty parties are either headed to court at least or jail for several of them that are involved. It's a huge problem. And on a lower but equally damaging scale, parents are acting as what we call helicopter parents, protecting their kids at all costs and allowing their successes and failures to reflect on 
who they are and never letting the kid fail or get hurt when at least two generations are living for external support and reinforcements they naturally reject the personal responsibilities and ramifications that come in the course of regular life it's the makings of a disaster and what it looks like and feels like to a person in the heat of this jumbled mess is that you are the victim of your circumstances or situation or relationships it can't possibly be your fault everyone has their own imaginary victim status card ready to whip it out in any and every circumstance it's exactly what my kid expressed. And this mentality of feeling like you are the victim when anything goes wrong has become an epidemic. What does the Bible say about playing the victim? It just so happens that this is not new. <laughs> In the opening chapters of Genesis, the game begins. Adam was clearly the victim of Eve's poor decision-making. He blames his sin problem on her. Eve followed suit, turning the responsibility off of her and onto the serpent because it was actually not her fault, but his. That little liar deceiving her. We get that in Genesis 3. Neither of these first two humans on the planet actually owned the responsibility for their actions when they got called on the carpet, but we know they were responsible for their sin. Apparently, there was a similar victim game going on in the early Christian church when we come to the New Testament. But the ultimate culprit in the blame game was God. And this is what we find in James. James chapter 1 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What I find interesting about this argument is that it seems to come out of nowhere. These verses beg the question, why are they here? <laughs> if you know anything about the book of James, it does read sort of like a book of bulleted lists. And so we could toss it along as just being characteristic of his style and flair. But it's always best to stop and ask questions as you read and study. So if we back up one verse, we find this in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with the blame game James wrote about next, but it's very connected. This is not the first time James uses the word trial, where he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He throws it out there in the opening address when he first starts writing, where he says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In these two places, he uses various forms of this same Greek word, which can mean both trial and temptations. Most scholars believe that the first time he uses it, when he says, consider it all joy, when you consider various types of trials, that he is using an encompassing sort of form of the word where it could be all kinds of troubles in any and every situation. But now when he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, that he's actually making a transition and he's talking exclusively about temptation. He's calling all believers to be immovable in the face of temptations because there's reward coming if you do and it's all going to be worth it. And that's when he moves right into this sort of psychological discourse about playing the victim and blaming God for your sin. But what's he talking about? Why is he even having this issue brought to light? Well, remember who James is. James is a good Jewish boy. He is the half-brother of Jesus, leading the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem. Jewish thought on good and evil went pretty philosophically deep over time. First, there was this recognition and inner division of wills was at war. 
one part represented your good tendencies and the other part on the other side was your evil tendencies. And these two forces were present in every man. It was the belief pulling him in sort of two different directions. And this understanding identified the problem that there were two forces at war, but it didn't try to explain it any further. So they sort of left it at that. And then some of the ancient writers made a move to further the development of the thought. And these writings are not in scripture, but they are historical. The writers of Ecclesiasticus made Satan responsible for the evil tendencies. And other writers took the evil tendencies back to the Garden of Eden, claiming that Satan was the originator, but none of these early theories that developed in these ancient writings were adequate to explain the beginning of evil. It just sort of kicked the issue down the road. Finally, Jewish rabbis argued, okay, if God created all things, evil is a thing. Therefore, he must also be the creator of evil. If anyone or anything is to blame for the problem of sin and evil tendencies, it had to be God. So my sin is therefore not my fault. It's God's fault. And that was their reasoning. This was the prominent belief about sin and man's responsibility for it. Man was simply a victim. You name it, he or she was not to blame. It was God's fault and he was tempting them to sin. So James comes in with this belief in place and offers sharp disagreement and sound theology. That's why it's there. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, because this was the belief. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That's the theology that undergirds the truth. And then he brings to light the truth about sin. The ultimate culprit in terms of what James presents as truth is man's desire. This is the blessing and the curse of the matter. My sin problem is a result of the desires of my own life for what is evil in the sight of God that I possess and act upon. But the greater truth James illuminates here is the power of God's grace working in a believer when it comes to temptation and full-blown sin. Because if I recognize the desire for what it was with the grace given me through Christ, that desire could be extinguished. I would kill it before it could take root in my life. That is the beauty of it. Notice how great is the personal responsibility when it comes to our own sin. Absolutely, God is the giver of the grace and promises a way out of sin every time. But there is no room for playing the victim game when it comes to our sin. No one else is to blame but ourselves when we choose to follow those evil desires. So, what's a girl to do? How do we move away from the victim game? Let me offer three strategies for getting out of the victim game. First of all, own your weaknesses. My husband drills this concept into our family in an effort to fight against everything they see and experience in their environments because this is a real deal as well as what's going on internally. He reminds them, I am my biggest problem. <laughs> they are their biggest problem. When we make a decision to follow what God would consider evil desires, it's not her fault, his fault, your mom's fault, your jerk boss's fault, the hypocrite at church's fault, the clerk at the grocery store's fault, or your ex's fault. You and I are far from perfect. When we sin, we are to take responsibility for that sin and stop playing the victim in situations which we don't come out smelling like a rose. And we need to help those entrusted to us learn to do the same thing. That morning with my kid who was upset, I didn't do what they wanted them to do, which was lie for them. And they finally got caught for not doing what I had asked them to do. Then they threw the responsibility on me. They did not get the response they were hoping for. I did not coddle. I did not sympathize. This was their own fault. I was not taking the fall or owning any of their poor choices, regardless of the consequences they were about to experience at school. 
In fact, I let my child know I was personally going to contact the teacher to make sure they were aware and there was no misunderstanding. <laughs> I didn't do this in a mean or demeaning way, but I did not bend either because I want this nailed down. I want them to know this is how we deal with our misgivings and consequences. We had another incident a few years ago in which the school district wanted to give my special needs daughter a certain normal freedom that most of the other kids in the regular ed classes were getting, but I did not feel like that was the best thing for her, so I said no, I would not sign the waiver. Well, they sort of patronized me about that and assured me nothing could happen on their watch and advised me I might need to start letting go and giving her some more freedom. So, on Honestly, I gave in. Two weeks later, I got a call from the assistant principal who was assigning my child three days of on-campus suspension for doing the very thing they assured me she could not possibly do on their watch. I went in for a meeting. They told me what happened and the punishment that was to ensue, and I reminded them what I had advised and recommended, and for that, where we were now in the process. And the vice principal did not know of the conversations that I had had before with the school authorities. And he felt my frustration. And I really liked this guy. Felt like he was on my team. However, before he went any further, I stopped him and said, this is not fair. And she is not even going to understand the consequences because they don't compute with this disorder. But she did it. Albeit, I told you and you convinced me to put her in this situation. Nonetheless, she did it. And she's going to pay the consequences. Don't think I wasn't worried to death about her while she was doing that. And I replayed, I won't be able to count how many times the incident in my head and how it wasn't fair and what I should have done differently to keep her from it and all that stuff parents go through because we don't want our kids to be hurt. And this was different, but yet it wasn't. Fair or justified or deserving doesn't cut it when the problem is us. Sin has consequences and we should not coddle those we love from experiencing it because they might experience negative ramifications as a result. That's called life. We must own our own weaknesses and allow those around us to own theirs also. The second thing we've got to do in terms of strategy is develop a sin-defeating plan. The second message James offers here is that you and I are far from perfect, yes, but we don't have to give in to temptation just because evil desires come at us and tempt us to sin. He walks us through the progression of how desire turns into sin and sin into death. It's what he related in a prior verse that is so life-giving. That first verse, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Can you see it? Temptation will come. Think of Joseph. Potiphar's wife came to him day after day in the house, and he did not seek after the evil desire. The evil desire came in hot, relentless pursuit of him. This is worth remembering. Jesus tells us Satan is roaming around like a lion waiting for someone to devour. Temptation is real. No one gets a pass, and it is tailor-made for you and your weaknesses. Therefore, we need a sin-defeating plan. Genesis tells us what Joseph was. He ultimately refused to even be in the woman's presence. David says that he vowed with his eyes not to look lustfully at a woman and with his mouth not to sin. Think about where you most often experience defeat. When are you playing the victim? Once you can identify the situations and the circumstances, then start making a plan. What can you do to actively fight 
against giving into the desire. It's very much like changing your eating habits. If candy bars are your downfall, don't display them in a dish on the dining room table. Don't even buy them. Don't walk down the candy aisle. Don't make desserts that tempt you. Instead, fill your pantry with healthy food options and the right kind of snacks. We know this. We simply don't do it. But what James is telling us here is more consequential than sticking with a diet. It's life or death. If you ever hope to stop playing the victim, you need a sin-defeating plan. Make it simple, but make one. And the third strategy here is to cultivate resilience. The studies I mentioned earlier suggest the culture is lacking in one major area. Resilience. But we don't have what it takes intrinsically to cowgirl up again and again. And it's a serious matter. The rates of depression, loneliness, and suicide are astronomical compared to previous decades. We've turned over the reins to forces outside of ourselves. So we should not be shocked to see this trend in our families or running amok in our communities and schools. But it's time to take our lives back. It's time to take our families back. Honestly, like my child's morning meltdown, it will feel harsh to you and to the people involved, and it will likely look harsh to outsiders. So be it. We have become a fragile people, and we will lose battle after battle if we don't begin to cultivate some resilience into our lives. We can't stand against temptation like this. Girl, you and I need to stop playing the victim. Find some grit. Take some responsibility and recognize life is not supposed to all work out as well as it looks on Instagram. Then we need to begin pouring oodles and oodles of this quality into our families and spheres of influence. God cannot use soft and fragile people as mightily as he can use a resilient one. Today, think about how you can move away from needing and depending upon external motivators and reinforcements to depending on who God declares you to be. If we can get this one straight, it will start us on a path to a resilience that will enable us to fight against sin with the grace of God and become a stronger, more secure version of ourselves we never could have envisioned. Seek the crown of life. It's so much better than the status of a victim. Rip up that imaginary card and put your trust and who God says you are. It's so much better than anything we could gain around us. Thank you for being a part of the Seniors community. I look forward to being with you next time. Thank you again for tuning in today. We will be releasing a new episode every week. I would invite you to become a subscriber. And it really makes a difference when you share something here that you find helpful or encouraging. You make an impact. You may never understand the value or difference your suggestion or encouragement made in the life of a friend or a casual acquaintance just by passing a resource along. So please share what you find here with others. I would personally be grateful. Don't hesitate to like us on Facebook or Twitter or leave a review. For more truth-saturated, gospel-centered, spiritually insightful encouragement, please go to www.sheyearns.com where you will find reading plans, articles, and other resources to help stir a desire for God into your everyday life.